Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I can never get back All right, we're back with Stride Talk with Billy Ray and Todd Garner for week two. Hello, everybody. Hey, Billy. Well, it's been a pretty uneventful week in terms of like negotiations or anything. The AMPTP has um, issued a response, which we're going to go through in, in detail with our guest, John Wells. Yep. Before we started, um, I just wanted to say uh, something I've been thinking about. I, um, I've been thinking about kind of our role as producers, yourself included, and of course, John, and any, anybody else who's a producer, and kind of what our job is. And, and what my goal in doing this podcast with you is, is really just to have the strike end. <laughs> I, mean, I agree. A- anything I can do to try to help that is, is I'm going to do everything I can to try and do that. And I feel like my role as a producer is basically well suited for that because um, as producers, we our whole job, one of our whole jobs, is to bring people together. And there's always conflict. And there's always... Uh, people on opposite sides. So when you're in the creative process, writers and studio executives disagree on notes all the time. Directors disagree with writers. Directors disagree with actors. And as producers, our job is to kind of remain calm, keep everybody looking towards the horizon, looking towards the goal of getting the thing, the thing made, and overcoming those obstacles in the creative process. And certainly in the business process, I've never, I don't know about you, but I've never had a budget where a studio gave me a budget, and I'm like, guys, that's too much money. Stop. Stop <laughs> with that. Or a director going, you know what? I don't need that many days. It's it's always, we're always on opposite sides. We're always, there's always friction. And our job as producers is to bring people together and keep people looking forward to how do we get through this? How do how does any movie or any television show get made? It seems insurmountable with all the, the, the differences we have. So that's been my experience, and that's what I've been really thinking about a lot. And I think as... As producers and as and as creative people and as writers, hopefully we can all keep looking towards the horizon and kind of figure this out. Um, I, I feel the same way. The response to uh, that first episode has been so heartening for me. Um, I, I've been hearing from people that I haven't had contact with in years, um, and people stopping me on the picket lines uh, to talk about um, how much they appreciated it. I even heard from a studio executive this week, um, off the record, of course. Uh, who called to tell me how much he appreciated the, the big picture that, that we were trying to provide. But the reactions also taught me uh, who we have not been addressing thoughtfully enough. And I, I want to start there today um, before we bring on our esteemed guest. And I want to begin again, if I can, with some context about the, the struggle that we're currently in. Since 1980, which was the beginning of the Reagan administration, $50 trillion in the United States economy has moved from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1% of Americans. Um, that's trillion, with a T. Um, it is the largest migration of wealth in human history, and it's happened under both Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. It's happened as a result of laws that were written by lobbyists. It's happened as a result of stock buybacks, and sometimes just outright corruption. Um, but it has calcified an economic structure in which anything is permissible in order to keep that richest 1% ridiculously wealthy. And it has been an assault on everyone else and an attack on the dignity of work and on the worth of the individual, and it has left people thinking that they don't matter. Um, I want to, again, state I am a capitalist to my core. Um, but 
Capitalism without guardrails can sometimes be so voracious that it devours itself. And I think that's what this fight is about. The companies that we're striking against currently produce 95% of the media consumed by the world. And those companies have made $5 billion in the last five years as a result of the hard work of all the people who try to help to capture the moving image. Um, I just want to say as an aside, for the record, I don't care how much money the CEOs of those companies makes. I, I make. I know a lot of writers do. I see it on a lot of picket signs. Mm -hmm. I don't care what David Zasloff makes. If a CEO can go to his or her board and, and demonstrate why they're worth $90 million a year, good for them. That's America. I mean that. They can enjoy being in that richest 1%. But their very value is based on knowing how to sell what we create and produce. And what they're asking us to accept will make it impossible for writers to stay in this profession. Once that happens, the suffering will not be limited to members of the former WGA. It will suck down everybody. Production designers, ADs, grips, gaffers, hair and makeup people, sound, props, electric, uh, catering, PAs, music supervisors, greens, my fellow directors, um, actors whom I adore, who have elevated everything I've ever written. Um, I don't think they want to live in a world where their faces can be replaced by AI. Um, but I would also say that it will suck down agents and managers and publicists and, yes, studio executives. Um, studio executives, notes from studio executives have made every script I've ever written better. Um, I value them. And I want a, a special commendation for independent producers who bleed for every movie, um, who work for years for free just because, just because they love the scripts that we write. Um, independent producers are not the target here. Um, they're not the enemy. They're our partners. Um, they protect the baby. Um, and this fight is their fight. Um, if we lose, everybody that I just mentioned is going to lose massively. Truck drivers who don't want to be replaced by driverless trucks. Um, all of you assistants out there who know that AI will not, lead it, will not need anyone to roll its calls or to juggle its schedule or to buy its kids Christmas presents. Um, and everybody outside the business whose living depends on people inside the business. So that's everyone who works in a coffee shop and dry cleaners and babysitters and dog walkers and photographers. It's easy to think of this strike as something that will hurt you without possibly benefiting you. But we're fighting for your families too. And that's what all this pain and sacrifice and fear are for. Remember, it's not just corporate greed that we're facing. It's extinction, all of us. Movies are made by people, not by machines. Um, my favorite American who ever lived, Abraham Lincoln, in his uh, second inaugural address, which is pretty stunning, you should read it if you haven't, um, was trying to describe how the Civil War had happened. So I'm going to paraphrase him pretty liberally here. He said, both sides deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let writers survive. The other side would accept war rather than let writers perish. And the war came. Well, it's here now. And I'm confident that if Honest Abe were alive today and he saw the offer before us, he would never stop vomiting into his stovepipe hat. <laughs> um, last thing before we start, and this is a, a personal shout out from me to Carol Lombardini, who negotiates on behalf of the AMPTP. Carol, I sat opposite you uh, three times uh, when I co-chaired the negotiating committee in 2011, 2014, 2017. And I saw firsthand that you do your job very, very well. Um, but AI would do it well too. And if left unchecked, I believe the CEOs that you now speak for will one day say, if AI is sophisticated enough to write an episode of NCIS, why the hell couldn't AI negotiate our deals for us? And of course, AI could. So ironically enough, Carol, we're striking for you too. And I hope you'll consider that. Okay, that was my Howard well, Beale moment for the well, week. I would also say, and I think that absolutely I agree with everything you're saying there in terms of just there has to be more value placed on what the creative community does. Right. Because not just writers. Not just writers. Everybody. Absolutely. I, I think it's easy for, uh, for people out there to think that this is a strike about fairness. And if it's a strike about fairness, we could lose the public sentiment battle because most people don't feel that they're treated fairly. This is not about fairness. This is about survival. 
This is about extinction. This is about killing the very economic engine that made those companies so wealthy in the first place. No, our work cannot be outsourced no. in that way. It can't be outsourced to another place, and it can't be outsourced to a machine. And on a global level, the way that Wall Street looks at our business is <clears throat> completely irrational, and it, it always has been, because what, what, what Wall Street rewards is consistency and growth. And it's the only way to grow. You can't, you can't make something make more or have more eyeballs on it. You have to make it and trust the creative process and trust the people and hope that more people come. But there's no way to say, oh, if I, uh, if I make Coke you know, one cent cheaper, I get 100 million more people buying Coca-Cola. It just doesn't work that way. And so it's always been this push-pull with our business since the, back in the 30s where they're trying to make it a consistent business. And what Netflix figured out, they're following the uh, Facebook model, which is obviously tech, tech, two tech companies, growth was rewarded by, by Wall Street and, and consistent growth was rewarded. And in fact, in the early days, it wasn't even revenue or profit. It was growth, quarter over quarter growth. And Facebook ultimately got dinged at some point where the Wall Street woke up and said, hey, where's the money? And same thing with Netflix. They've, they, they got woken up to say, hey, okay, where's the profit? You, en enough with the growth. And so it may not even be that streaming is the right model for our business. We don't know. We, they all went there because Wall Street rewarded it. So they all jumped into that you know, river to go downstream as fast as humanly possible. And it may be there's a completely different system that would work better. But what we're also seeing is a bunch of legacy media companies who chased Netflix off a cliff. And the result is Warner Brothers is now worth $20 billion, but has $50 billion in debt. Paramount has a $12 billion market cap and has $30 billion in debt. And they're not alone in this way. They followed that model. And the truth is that Paramount isn't Netflix. Paramount isn't Amazon. It's not Apple. Um, it's not a cloud services company. It's not the equivalent of Walmart. Um, Disney, I think, is in a different place um, just by virtue of its size and, and, and how much it owns. But so much of what's going to impact the people walking those picket lines is about corporations who are trying to figure out what you're describing. Well, speaking of the MPTP, let's go through their responses with our esteemed guest, John. Well, let, me, let me give him a, 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 let me give him a proper <laughs> introduction. Hello, John. We're coming to you right now, brother. Um, John Wells' career is ridiculous. Um, ER, The West Wing, Shameless, Southland, Animal Kingdom, among others. He's written and directed countless features. He serves on the board of governors of the Motion Picture and Television Fund, which is our industry's prime charity. He's won six Emmys and uh, had been nominated 25 times. He's also been president of the WGA twice. He is personally responsible for dragging me into guild leadership, um, which he did when he decided in 2011 to make me the co-chair of the negotiating committee just to piss off the late Gil Cates. Um, it's a pleasure to meet you, John. Welcome to the podcast. Wow, I'm not quite sure if I can live up to that introduction, but thanks, Bill. <laughs> um, I would point out, though, for the for the context of this conversation, that uh, I've been involved in writing and supervising writers and working on over a thousand hours of dramatic television for broadcast network, pay, streaming, um, so and uh, basic cable. So I do feel like I know a little bit about uh, the structures of uh, writers' rooms and what works well and doesn't work well. Uh, you absolutely do. Um, I want to just start with um, a very kind of 30,000 foot level view from you of how things have changed. Uh, I know for me, um, I became a Guild member in February of 1988. Uh, and one month later, in March of 1988, I went out on my first strike. Um, so this is now my third. Um, you have been involved in everything that has to do with the Guild uh, since I've been aware as a writer. How do things look different to you now? I, I know for, for me, as I'm walking those picket lines, this feels remarkably different from 2007, 2008. Um, I feel the media response has been very different and overwhelmingly positive. I, every time I talk to a journalist, 
um, which I probably do too often, they tell me that they're experiencing the exact same things that we're talking about. They're all afraid of being replaced. Um, I find that the response from the other guilds has been incredible. Um, I think everybody knows that we're, we're sort of the front line in a much larger struggle. Does it feel that way to you? Does it feel different than other um, uh, labor strife has felt in, in your career? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think uh, talking about it, uh, this as a, an existential moment is, is correct. The uh, streaming uh, revolution, the, the way in which our material is distributed, changed dramatically and all of our, uh, all of the residual formulas and the systems that were in place to allow us to maintain uh, careers, but also throughout the industry for all the freelance community to continue to uh, continue their careers has changed. Um, and now we need to figure out exactly how we're going to maintain an independent, sustained freelance workforce. The, the entire industry depends upon um, you know, a, a group of people being available, writers, directors, craftspeople, actors, who can support themselves so that when the companies decide they want to make a show, they can reach into that pool and get the talented people that they want. Um, and no one, because of the way the residuals were structured over many, many years and, uh, and the way in which people worked on television shows and on films, you were able to figure out how to craft a career and what's different on the line now. And I think why, while all, why all of the other unions are very supportive of what we're doing is that that certainty of being able to, to support a freelance career uh, seems uh, very much in doubt. So take me back to West Wing, take me back to ER or even take me to Southland or Animal Kingdom. Um, how were those shows sold? How many writers did you have in the room? What level of protection did those writers have? And what has changed now? Well, I think, you know, what's interesting in all this is that what we're asking the AMPT the companies to do uh, in our staffing minimums in particular is we're asking, we're actually doing them a favor by asking for these. Um, <clears throat> you know, what's happened in streaming, which is where most of the mini rooms are, exist, um, is actually not in the best, in their best interest or in the best interest, interest of the industry. So as an example, all of our shows um, for many, many years have had full staffs that participated whether you were a staff writer or an executive story editor or whether you were an executive producer on the show that existed throughout the pre-production production and into the post-production period. So, and th those, <laughs> that was not feather bedding. That was not something that we were doing that uh, was largesse. That's because everybody worked and worked hard and participated in the creation of those, uh, of those shows throughout the process. And now what's happened is that the, the streamers have come in, uh, net, you know, it's being referred to as a Netflix strike, um, I think in large part because these, these, uh, some of these habits began or, or practices began in streaming um, because, you know, they could cherry pick out of the people that everybody else had trained. So uh, one of the things that I'm kind of mystified by is that the legacy studios and broadcast networks um, are a lot are basically doing all the training because they're still doing staffs. And so we would, um, and then those uh, people who have uh, received experience throughout the, through the, through working on staffs on other shows are then cherry picked by the streamers and put into this position of having to do many rooms, which are not really advantageous to, a, to either a better show and certainly not advantageous to the, the writers who are working on those shows. Okay. So this is sort of the point. Um, you have eight writers, you know, and it's not like you guys are fashioning bad shows. This is ER. This is the West Wing. These are these are uh, game changing shows. Um, but the point is, it was a it was a 44 week living. Um, they could make their money for the year and keep their kids in school. And and uh, and happily, everybody won. Good for the studio. Good for the network. Good for the actors. Good for the directors. Good for the crew. Um, good for everybody. So let me contrast that with. Um, what happens now? Now you sell a show and the network says to you, okay, we're not sure if we're going to green light this. We're going to green light it based on a first episode script, a second episode script, and a format. And so you say, okay, so you want me to break season one. I need a, I need a writer's room. They go, great. I say, okay, 
I need four writers to break eight episodes. They say, you get two. I say, I need four. They say, two. And it wound up, that was just a point I couldn't win. So two writers plus me, three people. Then I get a writer's assistant. Um, and I dragged in a producer, of course, uh, who would help me sell the show. We now are supposed to sit in a room for 10 weeks and break out episodes. Fantastic. But those two writers are getting paid scale. Um, the only thing they're get, they are guaranteed above scale, they're of course not guaranteed at all, which is do they get to write a script? So I let them write episode two. Um, so they're getting a split script fee. And then we break the episodes and I write the series format. And let's just say that that show gets green lit. Those two writers are not guaranteed employment on the show as it goes into production. I will, of course, bring them back. But if for some reason uh, the network or studio said, no, you can't, they have no contractual protection. So what they've made is they've made scale for 10 weeks. They've split one script fee, and they're back in the job force. And that's it. Um, it's not like they're able to participate in any way in the production of the episode that they wrote together. How are they going to learn how to produce? Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of return to your, you know, your mention at the beginning of, of taking this from sort of 30,000 feet, we need to be careful to separate out what's actually happening in, in broadcast networks and, uh, and many of the pay channels from what's actually happening at the streamers. The situation that you're talking about um, has fully entrenched itself at the streamers. But there are still staffs that are working, uh, you know, through much more of the process at the broadcast networks and, and at, uh, pay, at most of the pay television shows. So what I don't understand is why the companies, uh, the legacy companies and broadcast networks are prepared to uh, take this issue on when it's only benefiting their competitors, which are the streamers who are trying to push them out of the business to begin with. Because they're already carrying these costs. And, and even more importantly, they're carrying these costs and training the people that then the streamers uh, want to poach when they've actually gained all the experiences necessary to run their own show. I think it's because they're worried as a, a collective that kind of what happened in the, with the agents is that the most vulnerable of the legacy companies will fall first. And then that precedent will be set. And like when the writers went against the packaging fees with the agents, the, the, the smaller, more boutique agencies signed first that forced the hand of the bigger companies. So I believe that as a, they believe as a collective, the, they'll get more in the long run together than they would if they were negotiating individually. But let's, 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 go, let's get into the response of the AMPTP. So the first, it feels like the three biggest issues, and correct me if I'm wrong, are overall pay, the writer's rooms, and AI. So the AMPT is saying that it has presented a comprehensive package of proposals to the Guild that include generous increases in compensation for writers as well as improvements in streaming residuals. And it noted at the time that it's prepared to improve that offer but is unwilling to do so because of the magnitude of other proposals still on the table that the Guild continues to insist upon. I think we have to break down the individual proposals to talk about that because what starts to happen is the, in those kinds of presentations, everything is lumped together and it's very nonspecific. So you actually can't really address the individual, uh, you know, it's a PR thing. It's, it, you can't actually address the individual issues because it's all lumped together in a, in a number that you can't pull apart and respond to. So, but we could, we could talk about that in the sense of what the individual, the cost of some of these individual requests are. Um, and I think that might be more useful. So let's talk about the, the writer's rooms, the minimum staffing for the writer's rooms. And let's, and let's begin by saying that the majority of the shows that work in broadcast network already do more or equal to what's being requested in the writer's room. Um, so what we're really talking is about many rooms in the streamers and the attempts to, um, I would argue that that's not actually in the best interest of the industry, but industry, but also not in the best interest of the show. And I think Billy, you would back me up on that. Look, one of the things, I mean, John, you were there, you're the one who, who brought me into this. Um, in each of the three negotiations that I've been a part of, the very first thing that I say in that room is none of the proposals that the WGA will make to you will be bad for the industry, but good for writers. 
everything that we are proposing is good for the industry as a whole because if the industry fails, writers die. Why would we ever make a proposal that would hurt the business right. that provides us our living? And that's been um, and that is not true in the reverse. Well, that's 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 exactly in terms of mandatory staffing and writers' rooms. That's exactly what the WG, the, the AMPTP says. Is just to quote them: the WGA said it demands includes proposals regarding mandatory staffing and guarantees of employment. These proposals require studios to staff a show with a certain number of writers who will be hired for a specific period of time that may not align with the creative process. In what way? Well, and in terms of writers' rooms, they're saying, in response to the WGA's concerns about development rooms, the companies agreed to introduce an entirely new payment structure for writers employed for before a firm commitment has been made to produce a series. John? Yeah, but we should also just talk about what these costs really are. Let me, let me just put it into some sort of real perspective, which is on our last year of Animal Kingdom, which was only about 18 months ago, our, low, our three lower-level writers, all very talented, who were working as a staff writer, uh, executive story editor, and the co-producer, and were on the episodic budgets, which meant that they were through the pre-production, production, and into the post-period, their cost represented less than 0.59% of our total budget. So what we're talking about when we're talking about these mandatory proposals is a very, very low percentage of the costs of what goes into the show. These exploding costs that have happened are not the responsibility or uh, <clears throat> uh, or the uh, we were not responsible for these exploding costs on these shows. And so, you know, what we're doing when we don't train writers uh, and give them the opportunity to get the experience and to participate in the entire creative process and allow the executive producer and the shows to be better is actually just mortgaging the future. Uh, everybody wants someone else to pay for that experiential training. Uh, everybody has to step up in the industry, and this is part of it. Um, these many rooms are not effective in controlling costs. They're not effective in the eventual quality of the material, and they're not effective in the way in which we're going to continue to provide experiences that allow the next generation of writer, showrunners, creators to be to receive the proper experience, to do the job well, make the shows better, and actually control costs. Okay, so to put that in, in some perspective, if we take those three writers out of the room to create a mini room instead of a normal room, we will save 0.59% of the budget and put three people out of work. Again, this is that, that migration of $50 trillion in wealth from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1% of Americans, and this is where it gets us. We know that the cost of producing an episode on average has risen by 50% in the last 10 years, and we know that writer pay during that same 10 years has dropped by 24%. So John, as someone who has produced so many hours of television, why does television cost so much more, 50% more now than it cost 10 years ago? You know, and I would say it's the, the shows that we're really concerned about in the sense of who's objecting to having um, more writers on staff uh, have grown in costs much greater than those averages. The, the broadcast network shows have not exploded in costs. Um, so you're talking double, triple, and even four times or more the cost of what our shows were before. And this is almost entirely driven by the large streaming shows. So you've got, you know, half hour shows that are costing 15 to 20 million dollars you've got 25 to 35 million dollars on one hour shows you've got extravagant locations hundreds of visual effects shots movie stars being paid a million dollars an episode and more it was a gold rush mentality to try and lock down market share in this rush to see who was going to control this new system of distribution which is streaming and the writers didn't create these costs. We're actually going to be the solution because these current costs of shows aren't sustainable. I mean, that's what Bob Iger said yesterday. And recently, that's what uh, David Zaslav has been saying. But we're not the problem. When you're talking about a cost per episode of $25,000 to $30,000 to carry these uh, additional writers who are going to get experience and make your show better, and you have a $30 million or a $20 million hour show, uh, you know, we are not the problem in these costs. No, in fact, we're the only way you can solve it because if you want to create a different kind of template, a different kind of show, 
someone's got to write it. Right. Um, and there's no one who can do that except the people that you're talking about. Some of the people have asked me about on the picket line, um, you know, what about Mike White, um, who, uh, who I don't know well, but I, I, I am certainly a fan and consider him a friend. Um, you know, what about someone like that who just wants to write their own show and doesn't want a staff around them? Um, here's what I would say about that, and I don't know Mike White's process. Um, I believe that even Mike White could benefit from having five or six writers in a room to bounce ideas off of, and I believe that Mike White has a responsibility to train writers um, and to inculcate them so that they learn how to do what he ultimately does uh, to the great benefit of HBO. 99% um, of the shows out there aren't written by a single person. And I do know Mike White well enough to know that um, he would want to do what is right for 99% of writers out there. I'm sure Julian Fellows would say the same thing. Um, it's very rare uh, to be able to write every episode of a show, and I understand the, um, the attraction of it, but everybody needs to bounce their ideas off of people, and everybody needs to make sure that, that the next generation is trained. Let's take an example of West Wing. Uh, Aaron Sorkin, during the first four years of West Wing, uh, wrote or rewrote almost all of those episodes. And we had a full writer's room going the entire time of as many as 10 and sometimes 12 writers who were presenting material, ideas, and, and just to talk about what happened with the people who came out of that room, uh, you know, Right now, The Diplomat, which is uh, one of, last week or the week before, was the number one show on Netflix, written by Deborah Kahn. She came up on The West Wing and then produced on Grey's Anatomy and Homeland. And The Witcher, uh, one of the biggest hit franchises on Netflix, Lauren Sch Schmidt Hissrick started on The West Wing as a researcher and then a staff writer. Josh Singer, who's got a show on Apple called Last Thing He Told Me, he started on The West Wing before he went on to win uh, Oscars. And here's the most important thing is that after four years, when Aaron left, we had a writer, a group of writers who you could argue that the next three years that we did of West Wing were not as, as uh, strong as, as Aaron's work, but it was a good show. It continued for three years. It was very profitable for the company, for, for Warner Brothers and for NBC to continue to make it. And all of those writers who had been in that room stayed and continued that show. And, and that is in the best interest of the companies. You do not want single people who don't have anyone else around them who is learning how to actually write in the voice of, of whoever that is. And I completely agree with you that Mike is, would be more than prepared to accept and take a few people on to that show to, to just help with, with research and writing and ideas and bouncing things around. And uh, they would you know, greatly benefit from it. But I would also argue that the future of the show would benefit from it. Well, that, that leads me to my, uh, a, a bigger issue that I, that I want to ask you about, John. What, it seems that since the beginning of the business, certainly since the beginning of the film business, and then television, because I'm not as in it uh, full-time, felt like it was different, but clearly it's not. Why would these executives not want to have great writing? Because in my experience in this business, I'm going to make this number up, but 99% of the time when something doesn't work, it's because the script wasn't ready or, or wasn't, <laughs> wasn't good. So, and we know that. It's not like it's, I'm just telling people and people are all of a sudden be like, you know what? You're right. Todd, uh, oh, I never thought of that before. Everybody knows if the script is not good and or ready or both, um, it's... It's not going to be good. It's very hard for a director and a bunch of actors to overcome a bad, a bad script. And, it's, and I would say if it's a good script, it's actually more in line with, even if the acting and directing aren't totally up to par, it probably still could work. It's like building a house and making the foundation out of sand. It doesn't make sense to me. I think that, um, I think that it's short-sighted in the sense that the in individual pressure on a show on each show seems to be about how do we get the budget done now? And we're going to hear a lot about that over the next uh, couple of years because of these costs have exploded. And so people look at it, well, what are those writers doing? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what those writers are doing during, during the production. They are rewriting constantly. We, I, I would argue that one of the reasons why some show, there, there are a lot of shows on the air. A, a lot of them feel uh, a little predictable and, and, that's in part because the executive producers are overwhelmed with simply trying to keep up during the production process. If you're the only person left 
with all the necessary changes to adapt to what your actors are showing you, who's working best with who, what do you have to do for physical production? Am I, you know, do I need to change this entire storyline because we thought it was gonna be big and we wrote it and now it's not working. It's a constant process that goes from pre-production when you're pitching the ideas in the room to the writing of the scripts, to the drafts of the scripts, to during pre-production, to the cast readings, which are hugely valuable, the casting, which hearing your own words is hugely, value, hugely valuable to all the changes that have to happen in physical production, to then editing, and editing is writing. You're constantly working throughout and having the writers available who are not only get, you know, we talk about this as if keeping the writers on is some sort of altruistic uh, suggestion. It's about them getting the experience and also being available to you as an executive producer throughout to continue to use their expertise uh, throughout the entire process to get a better a better product, a better show at the end. When you're producing a season of television, there's a moment where you are in post on episode two. <laughs> you are shooting episode three. You're casting episode four. Um, and you're having conversations about writing episodes seven and eight. You're doing a lot of stuff. You need a writer on set where they're producing the thing that's already been written to keep an eye on everything and to make sure the tone feels right. You can't be everywhere at once because if you care, you're there on the scoring stage. You're there when it's being mixed. You're there when uh, actors are trying on costume. You're, you're there for everything and you're only one showrunner. And let's not kid ourselves. Smart, intelligent people that happen to want to choose the craft of writing for us, meaning us, the, the business, can do other things. They will leave. If we keep pushing this down and keep pushing people down and keep pushing people around and making people feel unvalued, they'll find other things to do. So let's talk about, John, your, uh, your vision for how this ends. Um, Everything that I'm going to do until this strike is over will be about trying to make sure that the strike ends as quickly and as fairly as possible. You've been through it now three times. You were president of the Guild, and then you came back and ran again, um, which was uh, either unbelievably patriotic and selfless or just totally insane. Um, but you decided to do it and, and had an outsized impact uh, when you did. My personal belief is that this ends when the legacy media companies in the person of, you know, Bob Iger, Zaslav, et cetera, when they sit down with the uh, streamers and they say, you got to come back to the table. That's my personal belief. Um, but I don't talk to those people and you actually do. What do you think is, is the ultimate ending to this? Yeah, just to be clear, I, I talked to them, but I haven't been talking to them since the strike began because we have excellent negotiators and, uh, and we have excellent uh, leadership at the Guild. Um, and I don't want to be in any way, uh, you know, interceding in any of that any more than I would have wanted anybody to do it when I was uh, the president or you were running a negotiating committee. But they are, they are sending signals that, that, look, the companies themselves right now are having to downsize and they're having to downsize rather, substan rather substantially. Um, and that's a tragedy for the people who are being downsized, but it's also part of what happened with the explosion of, of trying to get a share of this distribution marketplace in, uh, in streaming. So they're, you know, sitting in their offices uh, thinking about, you know, how many people they've had to let go. However, that's, that has nothing to do with what we're doing with, with what the writer's strike needs to do, because the, what we're doing in the strike is saying we have to provide a mechanism by which writers can sustain themselves at the craft to your, to your point, which is you have to be able to understand that you can create enough revenue through the course of a year to sustain yourself, which is exactly what the DGA is saying, which is exactly what SAG is going to be saying, which is why the IA and everyone else, uh, you know, Teamsters, everybody is supporting us because we all have the same concerns. So I believe it ends exactly as you say, when the legacy studios realize that that they have to step in and and tell the streamers that a lot of what they've done, and I know some of these streamers are owned by the legacy companies, but but their business practices were forced by what uh, particularly Netflix was doing at the beginning. 
And so they're going to have to step in and say across the board, which they're already saying, you know, in a lot of their public statements, that uh, this this exu- this extraordinary exuberance that was paid for by the stock market and by borrowing um, has to end. The writers are not the place. The directors, the actors, the people who actually create the product that you sell through these distribution systems is not the place to try and cut back these costs or to change the model that allowed to that allowed you to be successful in the first place. That leads me to their AMPTP response about streaming residuals. Uh, their response is, in the most recent contract, 2020, the WGA negotiated a 46% increase in residuals for streaming programs to take effect starting in 2022. In many cases, writers have only received, re- I'm sorry, only recently begun to see these increases in their paychecks. The companies have recognized the importance of forum streaming and have offered to increase the residual. So it's, in their response, it says that streaming residuals were renegotiated in 2020 and it hasn't really kicked in yet, so they don't want to discuss that, but they realize that foreign residuals are important, even though that all foreign kind of territories are different. Imagine negotiating with someone who says, we don't want to discuss that. That's not a negotiation. That's not a conversation. But are they saying they don't want to negotiate it or that you just negotiated in 2020 and those, that, that, that whole, th- those checks have not yet kicked in yet? Okay, here's what happens in, in a negotiation. We make gains and then the next three years are about the companies clawing those gains back um, so that we come back to where we were again so that we can never actually make meaningful gains. But again, go back to... They're telling you what their strategy is. We don't want to discuss it. AI, we're not going to discuss it. Mini rooms, we're not going to discuss it. This is not how you negotiate uh, with a partner that you value. We have to step back and stop talking. The problem when you get into these rooms, and Billy can speak to this because he's negotiated a lot, is you're always talking about the percentages. You're always talking about what the percentage increase is, as if that's really the issue. The issue here, and this is the same issue for DGA and SAG, is that... Over decades, a series of residuals were established that <clears throat> that dealt with the market as it existed, which included separate foreign residuals, separate residuals for syndication, separate residuals for domestic syndication, uh, for DVDs, for um, you know for all these various income streams. So you received residuals that were based on the revenue that was given that that showed up in those, and it was usually one point five or one point two or two percent of the revenue that went to the writer. Um, So as these uh, streaming businesses have become worldwide, all of those other uh, streams have disappeared for writers, directors, actors. Those amounts were central to allowing people to pursue their careers in between working because we're freelance, right? So when we're talking about these percentages of what they'd already offered, it's it's the wrong conversations looking at the wrong issue. The issue is, this has taken this di- new distribution stream has taken over the way in which people uh, uh, allow them to just have a career and stay in the business. We have to be talking about how how much should this be to replace the entire residual load that you used to get from all of these other various streams that allowed you to continue to pursue your career. Let's talk about what it's going to take to make. Uh, the people that are being uh, struck against feel it. Um, we know that CBS delayed its upfronts. We know there's no Saturday Night Live. We know there's no late night. Um, we know there may be some uncertainty affecting the stock prices, uh, stock price of Netflix. Um, how long does this strike have to last before we know that there is no fall TV season? Um, well, I can tell you, we have a, a show that was picked up for Fox uh, four days before we uh, we went out on May 1st. And, um, you know, that's not supposed to be on until uh, January. Uh, we only had two scripts written in advance in a format that you do to sell it. Um, and so there's not a writer's room. Nobody's proceeding with it. And, and we feel that in 60 days to 90 days, we'll have trouble making the January premiere dates. So, you know. The fall is already being impacted, and it'll certainly be impacted by, you know, uh, beginning to middle of June. Uh, so, 
you know, it, it happens pretty quickly in broadcast television, uh, less so, you know, it's, it's disingenuous, I think, for uh, some of the CEOs to say they've stocked up or whatever. It's a pipeline. So you can stock up things that come in the short term into the pipeline because they're already done or they're almost done. But right behind that in that pipeline is nothing because nothing's right. getting produced. So, right. you know, this I, the whole argument that uh, we can sustain along the companies can sustain a long strike because reality or wherever else I don't think is actually borne out in the marketplace given that the only way that the, the huge fear in streaming is churn, right? The churn rate, which all of the CEOs who run streamers talk about, because people turn things off, uh, you know, they just go ahead and unsubscribe and then resubscribe when there's something they want to watch. So um, that unsubscribe is the great fear. It's the great fear about what impacts the, uh, the, the um, stock price, which just happened with Disney. And so uh, on their reports of, of some churn. So, you know, they have to have new material in the, available in that pipeline to prevent people from turning it off. If it's truly 0.5% of the budget and the stock is in the toilet and they're laying off thousands of people and the business is struggling and they're trying to figure out streaming, why? Why are we going through this? What What is the rationale? If it's costing them so much money and your pipeline's gonna be disrupted and it's such a small number, this 0.5%, as you say, what, what, what is the rationale here, in your opinion? Um, there are some very talented and smart people who are on the industrial relations side of these companies uh, that you're in the room with uh, when you're negotiating. They are not supposed to return having spent money. Um, and so every time you get to a strike, it's, uh, it is because something has jammed up in that room where the AMPTP has been unable to come to consensus on what's in the best interest. What, what I don't really understand, and Billy, you may be able to speak to this, is these businesses are so different with the people who are in the room, you know, the companies that are in the room. I don't, I don't know how they're actually going to come to a certain consensus because they have very different uh, business objectives, um, which is why I do agree with you, Billy, that I think it's going to eventually be the CEOs of the legacy studios who oftentimes also have streamers coming in and saying, hey, uh, this is not in our best interest and, and we need to make a deal. So, John, I want to give you uh, a last minute. Um, first of all, thank you for coming on. We thank deeply appreciate much, it. But I want you to take a minute and address the community at large. One of the things that I found uh, about that first episode that we did was that it wasn't just writers who heard it. It was uh, all kinds of people who are in and out of the business, but who are impacted by the business. This is your chance. Uh, you got a microphone uh, and you got a minute. You can say anything you want to them. What would you leave them with? Uh, I would say that please continue to support the artists in these next sets, round of negotiations. That's the writers, the directors, the actors as, it, as we're negotiating these things. The, the entire health of the industry depends upon our finding ways and the companies realizing that they have to find ways to continue to support our freelance workforce and allow people to stay in the business and to continue to pursue their careers when there are other opportunities that don't carry quite so much risk. And that involves improving the residual structure. That involves really dealing with these, uh, with these room, the many rooms and the notion of how many people need to be on a show. And all of it is in the best interest. What the Writers Guild is suggesting is in the best interest of the long-term health and vitality of the entire industry. And I remain mystified that these uh, negotiations weren't really almost accepted as a thank you on the part of the legacy studios to dealing with these issues, which are primarily uh, the majority of these issues are, are Netflix issues, streamer issues, but, but a world in which Netflix has set the, world, has set the business parameters and uh, this isn't a matter of winning or losing. It's a matter of our getting what's necessary to maintain this workforce. And we all know that on the other side, we need them to survive. We need them to be healthy. We need them to be profitable. We need their stock to be going up for various reasons. And so I would personally, and I'm, Billy, I know you feel the same way, if, any, if we're getting any of this wrong, from the AMPTP, that's hard to say, AMPTP <laughs> side, 
Um, if we're getting any of this wrong, please, somebody reach out to us, call us, come on here and correct us. Because like Billy and I said, we want this to end. So we would encourage anybody to please reach out to us and tell us if we're missing the mark here. And again, as a producer, I can't do anything without you guys. So I need this to work. And, and I, I know that uh, good writing, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing can replace it. It's just the difference between something that's mediocre to bad to something that's legendary and lasts forever is the writing. It's the lines you remember. R please remember that. I want to thank John Wells. Uh, I learned a lot, as I always do when I talk to you. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Benjamin Bloom. Um, thank you to everyone who, who is out there listening. Uh, please join us next week when our guests will be Lou Wasserman and Frank Capra. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Billy, you know what? You're striking. Well, thank you, Todd. I think you're striking, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.